Welcome to Corpus Christi Anglican Church. I'm Morgan, our planting clergy. Our vision of this church is to become a common people in common prayer for uncommon transformation. This podcast is where you will hear our sermons and other teachings that have happened at Corpus Christi. We primarily serve the region of Springfield, Franconia, and Kingstown. We're glad that you're here. Thanks for taking time to listen. Here's the message. Thanks, Morgan. It's an honor to be here, and it's uh, it's really delightful just to visit our church plants, and it feels like a really appropriate moment to say thank you for being a part of planting a new congregation in our diocese. It's important work. Um, so as we come in and we reflect on the readings that we've had this morning, it's Palm Sunday, of course, and it's a the opening of a wonderful week for us where we sit with the story of Jesus' death, that last week of his life, and one of the unique things that happened for us in the life of the church is we act out this passion differently, right? We Even this morning, we began outside, we processed in, we're waving our palm branches, we're the crowd shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And just now, with the passion reading, we are the crowd that is shouting, on the one hand, Hosanna, and on the other hand, crucify him, give us Barabbas. And we hear and we enact the mocking of Jesus in a unique way. It's a very poetic day for us. All liturgical moments are poetic in a sense. They're very artistic, and they're meant to stir our minds. And so I'm reminded of something that Malcolm Geith, some of you may be familiar with his work. He's an Anglican priest and a poet, a really wonderful poet. And if you've never been exposed to his work, please find it because it will bless you immensely. But in a recent book of his called Lifting the Veil, Imagination in the Kingdom of God, he begins quoting um, Samuel Coolidge on the power of poetry in the arts more broadly. And he says this, that the artist seeks to awaken the mind's attention to the lethargy of custom and to direct it to the loveliness and the wonders of the world before us. An inexhaustible treasure, but for which in consequence of the film of familiarity and selfish solicitude, we have eyes yet see not, we have ears yet hear not, and hearts that neither feel nor understand. I love that quote because it's a remarkable insight into the human predicament. On the one hand, we live in this world that's created by God. It is replete with splendor and glory and majesty if we have eyes to see it. But on the other hand, we look at the world, we experience the world through this film, a veil of overfamiliarity that sadly is marked again and again and again by the selfish solicitude of our own hearts, the prevalence of human selfishness and sin. And this clouds our seeing, our hearing, and our hearts so that what we take as normal is the brokenness, is the ruin. We're all too accustomed to the ruin of our world. Malcolm Geith argues that the central aim of Jesus' life and the incarnation in particular kindles our imagination. And no more poignantly, so I would offer, as in the week of, uh, as in Holy Week, Jesus' entrance to Jerusalem on Sunday, the story of the Passion will frame the week that is before us, that we might see God more clearly. What is he like? How is he with us? And what would he have us understand in understanding him more about our own selves, our own vocation, 
in being human. It's an invitation, I think, to wonder at the, at the God who loves his creation so intensely and resolutely, completely unto the end and to death itself. It's an invitation that we would um, grasp that at the heart of being human is the reality of our baptismal vows, that we are the beloved children of God. And like Jesus, the beloved, we follow in the way of the cross. And so two things I just want to highlight this morning, both hope and humility. So think of hope for a moment. It's always, challenge, it's always challenging in the context of a worship service like Palm Sunday to sort of linger on the hope that's on the lips of the crowd that first Palm Sunday. But I want us to stay there for just a moment before we leap into the crucified moment, right? When we're the ones shouting, now crucify him, we get that there's a fickleness about our faith and that there's something shallow very often about our faith. But I want you to sit, if you can, for just a moment with the hope that we have in their voice. At no other time in the gospel account do we see a parade of celebration like this one where the crowds take up palm branches and they take up essentially the script of coronation itself as marked in Zechariah 9 and Psalm 118. The crowd cries, Hosanna, which means Lord save now. Lord save now. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So the crowd is hopeful for something that they've experienced about salvation that their life with Jesus has marked for them. They want more of it. So think about this cast of characters that we played this morning, right? Who was in the crowd and who was in the reading group that was up here this morning? Those cheering are almost certainly, right, those who have been most touched by Jesus. Commentators often think that they are the poor who were, who were sort of comforted with his presence. They're the hungry that were fed. They are the, the tax collectors and the prostitutes, the sinners and the prostitutes, tax collectors like Zacchaeus perhaps, those connected with Jesus more int- intimately, those who have experienced how he meets their deepest needs and longings, maybe even longings that they themselves were not aware that they had. They tasted something of the kingdom come near in the person of Jesus. Of course they would make him king. We would make him king also. We want more of that. Yes, the way of the cross will confound us as the means by which God's kingdom ultimately comes into our world. But their hope, their cry in this word, Hosanna, is a signal of hope. There were Roman soldiers in the midst of that crowd as well. And why were they there? They were there to keep the peace. Whose peace? The Roman peace. Not God's peace. The Roman peace. Life as they had become accustomed to it. And it was very often kept by extreme violence and the humiliating practice of crucifixion by which traitors would be put down. And interestingly, it will be one of their lot, right? As if you, if you watch British crime shows, you lot, right? It will be one of their lot, right? The centurion who will be one of the very first voices to acclaim Jesus as the son of God as he watches him die and sees the miraculous unfolding in the aftermath of his death. The religious leaders are also there. They're the most confusing of all, perhaps, because they have the scriptures. They know the scriptures. They read the scriptures. They search the scriptures. And maybe they most actually characterize people like us. We read the Bible. We study the Bible. You do morning and evening prayer, and so on and so forth. And when we read the accounts of the gospel It is these people that are most confusing to us because we would think 
that they would recognize in the person of Jesus the grandeur of God's presence. But they don't. In Mark's gospel, we are meant to understand that it is their own selfishness and envy, as we read this morning, um, that is beneath. They're stirring up the crowd. They're uncomfortable, right, with Jesus because he upsets whatever equilibrium they've established inside of their political moment. As bad as it may be, it works for them in some way. But I want you to remember that this cry, Hosanna, Lord save now, is the verbal manifestation of real hope, honest hope even. That the good and the beautiful world that erupts in the company of our Savior is the world that they actually long for to be the new normal. This is the world we want to inhabit. And Jesus disrupts the status quo of the painfulness in our world so that they cry out, Lord, save now. It's very sobering, I think, to think about that cry of Hosanna in the context of our own historical moment. We just can read the newspaper headlines And we know the sorrow that exists in our world. We're a little over a year now into the war in Ukraine. And so we recognize that our world is torn deeply by war and violence. A little more closer to home, we recognize the danger of escalating gun violence in our country most recently manifest this past week at Covenant Christian School in Nashville. And I have to admit that is the first time in which I'm one step removed from persons in that school. It's shocking to think about the way violence is tearing us apart. Lord, save now is the cry of our hearts because the world is not as it should be, certainly not as God desires it to be. And even closer to home, maybe you think about some sorrow in your own life. The difficulty as you're sorting through your own life story, the difficulty of your health, the, the, the struggle you might have relationally, all of these kinds of things that we can point to and in the context of these sorrows cry out, Lord, save now. He's the source of our hope, the object of our hope, the one in whom our hope is rightly situated. In the plot line that will unfold this week, we declare resolutely that Jesus is a Savior who sees who hears, who feels, and who understands whatever reality he finds in us. It may be joy, it may be laughter or sorrow and tears, fear and terror, but the cry is the same nonetheless. Lord, save now. Bring your kingdom. Jesus comes to us to disrupt the lethargy of custom, right? That which has become all too familiar for us, that our imaginations might actually be stirred for the world that God has promised and the one that he brings. But the second thing we should think about this morning is obviously humility. Notably, the humility of Jesus as he reveals a humble God to us. We see that poignantly in our Philippians text, right? That Jesus, although God did not grasp at his godness, wrap your mind around that reality. And it is the activity of this week, more than any other point in the life of Jesus, that sort of perfectly manifests the radical humility of God in our world. We always point out in this particular script of Palm Sunday that Jesus chose for his entrance to Jerusalem a script of humility and not war, not a show of sort of overt power. This has been the whole of his life. In the wilderness, he resisted the devil's temptation to seek leadership in the way that power was ordinarily wielded inside of his world. 
Jesus refuses that, and he begins the work of taking up his cross, even to this week and to the point of his death. He chooses to live as the beloved son of God, which he is. And all the more so, he never drops that reality of living as one who is utterly confident that he is the beloved. And that leads him to move into the point of his own death. Jesus is not like us. Jesus is not like the leaders that the people then already knew. Those political leaders within the Roman Empire, certainly, or even the religious and the political leaders inside of Israel. And we could even draw the same comparison towards our own selves, our political leaders, Republican or Democrat. And sadly, we can also point to people like us, the religious leaders inside of the evangelical church. Jesus doesn't misuse power. He doesn't abuse power. He humbles himself to the point of death, taking up his cross. In this ride, he stirs our imagination for a very different way of being a leader, and more than that, a very different way of enacting our own humanity, a different way, certainly, of securing our deepest hopes and our dreams for a world put right. Scripts of war and power were boldly on display in Jesus' world and boldly on display during a feast time inside of Israel. But scripts of war are not the ones that Jesus chose for himself. He doesn't choose a contrasting show of his own military might. Instead, he comes in peace, not war. He rides on a donkey, not a war horse. He rides to the cry of Hosanna, not rallying his troops to himself. And as we follow Jesus further into Holy Week, Jesus will just keep stirring our imagination. You'll see that on Thursday during a foot washing space. You'll see it on Friday as we remember the crucifixion of Jesus. You'll see it at an Easter vigil as God raises Jesus from the dead and affirms that he has the highest name above all names because this is what it means to be human. And God will forever enthrone that kind of humanity. And even now, he invites us to be those who bend our knee toward him as the manifestation of God and the manifestation of what it actually means to be human, to be those who are indeed saved by him. This is a beautiful week, and I hope it is a week in which your imagination is stirred. Because it is a week in which hope and humility are forever joined in the person of Jesus. And he would join hope and humility in our own lives as well. Hosanna, blessed is he, blessed is the Lord rather, who comes to a world like our own, to hearts like our own. I want to come back to Malcolm Geith and I want to leave you with the last line of his poem for Palm Sunday. And it's very simply this. It's an invitation. Jesus, come, break my resistance, and make me your home. May that be the cry of our hearts this week as we enter Holy Week. Pray with me. Our Father in heaven, we ask that you would would indeed stir our imagination because the lethargy of custom, the familiarity of brokenness and pain and sin and suffering is palpably real for us, each of us. Would you stir our imagination for the world that you want and for the way in which Jesus, by his death, brings us into the world that you want? Lead us, we ask, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.